The reading for today is from Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Morning, my name's Fred. I'm part of the, uh, the team here. And uh, if you're a visitor with us, I just want to echo what Tanner said. We're very thankful you've come and joined with us this morning. Um, we are going to look at Psalm 32 that was just read for us uh, in a moment. But before we do that, can I please invite you to pray with me? Let's bow our heads and hearts. Father in heaven. We gather together this morning in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to tell us, your people. And so give us hearing ears. Give us humble hearts to receive the word implanted. And Lord, give us a faith that is joyful and obedient, that is eager and willing to do what is pleasing to you. Help us to live in a way that honors your name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, Psalm 32. And I, I've been looking forward to this psalm for weeks because for 25 years, Psalm 32 has held a very, very special place in my heart. Um, when I was 27, that's a long time ago, um, just a few weeks after I became a Christian, I stumbled upon this psalm, and I read it for the very first time, and it gripped me. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It, it, was, like, it was like I was looking into a mirror. You know, David talks about this, this agony and this anguish of his, of his sin and his guilt before God, and then he talks about this joy of being forgiven. And that was my experience. I mean, I was vibrating at the time. I was a new baby Christian. And I'd gone from death to life. From darkness to light. From bondage to freedom. And, and David was speaking for me. I was looking at myself in Psalm 32. I can't tell you how many times the Spirit of God has taken the words of this psalm from that day to this day, and stirred up in me a, a, a fresh 
a fresh, sweet appreciation for this simple fact that I am forgiven. All of my sin, all of my sin is forgiven in Christ. And this psalm has ministered so much to me over the past 25 years. A number of years after I read this psalm for the first time, uh, I went into seminary and we were taking a class on the psalms in seminary. And I learned in that class that the 4th century bishop and, and theologian, St. Augustine, actually took the words of Psalm 32 and, and painted them on a board and mounted it on the wall beside his bed so that every morning when he got up, he was reminded of the blessedness of being forgiven. That's wise. We should do that sort of thing. When we get up, not to immediately check our Instagram feed or our Facebook profiles, but to remind ourselves of the blessedness of being forgiven. This morning, I want us to go into Psalm 32. I want us to look at it in order to see ourselves. I want to try and hold it up to you this morning as a mirror. Because whether you're a non-Christian this morning, whether you're a new baby Christian the way I was 25 years ago, or whether you're a mature Christian, I believe that Psalm 32 has much to say to every one of us. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at Psalm 32 under four main points. They are forgiveness, protection, instruction, and worship. If you're taking notes, I'll quickly give those to you again. Forgiveness, protection, instruction, and worship. Let's dive right in and look at forgiveness. This is by far and away my longest point. David begins Psalm 32 with a declaration. In verses 1 and 2, this is what he writes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the word here, blessed, which we read in verse 1 and then repeat it again in verse 2, that can just be simply translated as happy. Everybody wants happiness. All people, Pascal says, all people pursue happiness. And so Psalm 32 is telling us where we can find true happiness. But in the Hebrew, this word is actually in the plural form. So we could say it's the blessedness or the happiness. It's not just being blessed or happy. It's the blessedness. The Living Bible loosely translate these verses as what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Now, I know we sometimes use the word blessed. We throw it around. It's casual. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. It's not like that little hashtag blessed that we put on our Facebook page when we post pictures of vacation with the family. I don't know. I don't often 
post hashtag blessed when I'm on vacation with the family. <laughs> I say, pray for me. But that's not what the that's not what the psalmist is talking about here. He's not talking about hashtag blessed. He's talking about about the blessing of God landing on us. He's talking about a life that is flourishing. And, and, and he's talking about being alive, being fully alive. He's talking about true fulfillment. Way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 1, verse 28, it says that God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That initial original blessing is responsible for the, the thriving and the flourishing of the entire human race. That's quite a blessing. Years later, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus connects being blessed or the blessing of God to his present and coming kingdom. You remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus links God's blessing on our lives to the future fulfillment of his coming kingdom. And it's, it's a future, it's a future reward that has present, it, it infuses our present life with, with hope and with courage and with purpose and direction. It's this future hope that we're locked on to, looking to, hoping in, moving toward, that impels us today to live toward it and for it. Changes the way we live now. Now, here's the thing. In Psalm 32, don't miss this, because Jesus, when he linked blessedness to the kingdom, he assumed this. In Psalm 32, David connects blessing with being forgiven. And this is absolutely crucial for us because without forgiveness, we can never know the blessing of God. Without forgiveness, we can never experience that that flourishing fullness of life, that, that deep happiness that all of our souls long for. We'll never know it if we're not forgiven. We might even say that forgiveness opens up the floodgates of God's blessing. Because here's the thing. Our sin and our guilt is a barrier. Our sin and our guilt is a wall between the blessing of God and us. It's got to be removed. It's got to be taken out. It's got to be brought down. It's got to be destroyed. And that's what we're reading about here in Psalm 32. In verses 1 and 2, David uses three words to describe sin, three nouns, and 
he uses three verbs to describe forgiveness. First, he says, transgression is forgiven. Second, he says, sin is covered. And third, he says that iniquity is not counted. It's not charged against us. It's not imputed to us. So here we've got to see this, that that being blessed is not about vacation. Being blessed is not about being good enough. It's, It's not about being moral enough. It's not about being saintly enough. Being blessed is about being forgiven. Let that hit you this morning. Blessedness, blessedness is not something that any one of us can earn. God does not owe us his blessing. Blessing only comes to us through the forgiving love of God. It's a gift. It's grace. And to illustrate this point, David relates this amazing personal testimony in verses 3 to 5. Look at these verses with me. For when I kept silent, means silent about his sin and his guilt and his transgression. He says, when I kept silent, my bones, they wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength that was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you looked at your grass this summer? And then he says, I acknowledged, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, I've tried to put my heart into how I read that because if anyone reads this in a boring way, take their spiritual pulse. They're dead. This is, this is good, glorious news. But here's what I also know. And what I want to do is pause for a moment because I think that we have a problem hearing this the way we're supposed to hear it. I don't think it hits us the way it should hit us. So what I want to do is pause and just talk about with you for a moment a potential problem that I see when it comes to reading Psalm 32 or, quite frankly, much of the scriptures. See, because I think it's possible for for some of us to read the language of Psalm 32 and for it to strike us as a little strange, a little odd. In fact, I'm willing to guess that perhaps for some of us here, to hear words like iniquity, transgression, sin. They don't really resonate. Even if we've read the Bible a fair bit and been part of a church for a number of years, I I just think that this kind of talk, even for Christians, can make us feel a little uncomfortable, right? After all, that's not the kind of language we hear every day, is it? It's not the kind of language that we hear around, you know, the drinking fountain at work or at school. You know, you're on a sports team. How are you doing with that iniquity? 
You know, it's just these words don't exist in our culture anymore. They seem, they seem to many of us, our, our ears hear words like this and they seem outdated, don't they? They seem passe and old-fashioned. Or maybe, maybe some people hear language like this, and I've, this has happened many times, and they just want to get up and leave. It's offensive. Don't talk to me about that. I've had people say that to me. It's offensive, or, or maybe for some of us it's embarrassing. Or maybe we just think it's just irrelevant. Well, this is the problem I want to pause on for a moment and talk about. Because while that kind of response to, to, to the language of sin is understandable, let me lean in with you this morning and tell you it's very, very dangerous. It's dangerous if that's, if we're embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed or we think that just talk about sin is irrelevant. This is a 21st century, 2018. That's very dangerous. Because unless we come to terms, unless we honestly face and come to terms with our sin and our guilt before a holy and just God, we will never know the blessedness of being forgiven. We will never know true, deep, lasting happiness. We'll never know what our souls most profoundly long for. So let me ask you this morning, why does the biblical language of sin seem so strange to us? Or to ask perhaps an even deeper question, why do we have so much difficulty recognizing what one 17th century English pastor called the sinfulness of sin? Why do we have so much difficulty recognizing that? Why doesn't our sin weigh on us the way it weighed on David in verses 3 and 4? Let me read it to you again. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is sickness of the soul. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength. All my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Why is it so rare for people today, modern people in our culture to experience this kind of anguish and and deep conviction and sorrow over, over unconfessed sin? Seems foreign, doesn't it? Well, I can't offer you, even hope to offer you a complete answer to these important questions this morning. But I do want to suggest something that I think we need to consider. See, to understand why we've lost a sense of sin's seriousness, and we need to recover it if we're going to know the blessing of God. To understand why we've lost a sense of sin's seriousness, we need to understand something of the radical changes, the the radical moral changes that have taken place in Western culture. This is part of a much bigger thing that's been going on in history. And we're all moving along with it. We're all going where history is taking us. 
Now, there's books, many books. I've got some I could lend you. No, I won't lend you my books because sometimes you don't give them back. And that upsets me. So I can tell you books to get on Amazon if you want to read about this. There's a lot written on this. But let me put it in a nutshell for you. And this is like, like embarrassingly simplified. With the emergence of the modern world, what we call the modern world in the 18th and 19th centuries, what happened very simply is that the influence of biblical theism, biblical theism centered on the centrality and, and, and the priority of God, all of that began to wane. It began to retreat from its influence in the wider culture. I think all of us are familiar with this. And what happened is in that vacuum that was created, a very different, a very secular worldview rose up to take its place. And in that new secular context, as modern people began to face modern problems, and there are many, what happened is eventually the field of psychoanalysis or psychotherapy emerged and began to develop. Now, psychoanalysis or psychotherapy passes itself off as sort of a a, a scientific investigation of the inner life. And that many of the ideas and the assumptions that drove this new discipline spread quickly. So, for example, in the area of advertising, psychoanalysis made its way very quickly. In fact, Sigmund Freud's cousin was one of the key early advertisers in the United States, really popularized things that advertisers do today. Made its way into education and medicine and politics and business and entertainment and popular culture and even into the churches. In 1966, a sociologist named Philip Reif described this corrosive influence of these ideas in his book titled The Triumph of the Therapeutic Uses of Faith After Freud. And in 1977, Paul Witts wrote a damning indictment of his own profession in a book titled Psychology as Religion, The Cult of Self-Worship. And today what we see is the influence of this new religion everywhere, all around us, all the time. Click on an Amazon and just type in, click on Amazon and just type in self-help books. Tens of thousands. That is, a, is from the influence of this new religion. How often do we hear about the importance of self-esteem and self-fulfillment and self-expression and the list goes on and on. But where we have seen a particular and insidious influence of this rise of the therapeutic, this triumph of the therapeutic, is in the complete transformation of our moral vocabulary. 
This is the point we need to focus on this morning. There's been a complete and wholesale transformation of our moral vocabulary. For example, today people admit to having a problem and then they go to a therapist for healing. It's very different language from the language of the Bible. Harvey Weinstein claims to have a sexual addiction. It's very different language. No responsibility. He suffers, he says. He suffers from a sexual addiction. Bad behavior is no longer sinful. The new word is it's simply inappropriate. Pornography is now called adult entertainment. And adultery is having an affair. I mean, that, that just sounds like fun. The language has been transformed. It's been euphemized. The idea that the moral weight of it has been evacuated. And certainly the idea of responsibility, our own responsibility for the things that we think and the things that we say and the thing that we, things that we do is gone. We're all just victims of our circumstances. It was bad parenting. It was, you name it. The catalog goes on and on. Examples could be multiplied. But here's what I'm saying. The influence of biblical language in our culture has been largely replaced with language that is both secular and therapeutic. And that, that ought to concern us all. This is a significant reason why when I get up here and I talk about sin and iniquity and transgression, it's the influence of this secular therapeutic worldview that makes us kind of feel uncomfortable. That feels strange. And because it makes us feel uncomfortable, we don't connect with what the Bible is saying, with what David is struggling with. It all seems so distant. In an essay titled Faith and Therapy, William Kilpatrick concludes this. The sense of guilt, the sense of sin, the sense of the sacred, the sense that there is an order of authority by which we are judged. These have not disappeared entirely from Christianity, but they have been eroded. If this is difficult to see, it is because of the fog that the culture of therapy emits. An empathic fog which surrounds and confuses us and prevents us from seeing life clearly. David Wells puts it very succinctly when he writes, what has disappeared is not sin itself, but our cultural capacity to understand it. Now, I'm sorry to go into all of that, but that's crucial. Because we don't come in here as blank slates. We come in here having breathed in deeply the language and the mores of our culture. And that's how we hear the word. That's how we read the word. And that's why a lot of it doesn't connect with us. Now let's look again at Psalm 32 in order to try, I hope, to see ourselves just a little bit more clearly in the mirror. Look at verses 34, or 3 and 4, sorry. We we read about the impact, this agony and this impact of David's sin as it sort of festered, unconfessed, and unforgiven in his soul. Look at what he says. When I kept silent, my bones 
It's in him deep. My bones, they were wasting away. He's groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up. You know, these days, if we have a, a conscience that's gnawing at us, that, that hound of heaven that's pursuing us, making us feel a bit miserable and anxious and fearful, what do we do? Well, unfortunately, not many of us follow the pattern of David here. What we do is we, we, we numb ourselves, don't we? We, we, we kind of numb the pain. We distract ourselves with endless entertainment or we go out for drinks. We buy a, a new moto, motorcycle, I don't know. <laughs> we do a lot of crazy stuff because we don't want to face it. How many of us cannot sit still in perfect quiet for an hour. We've got to have the music plugged in. Sorry, Tanner, I wasn't looking at you. (laughs) See, we've got to be constantly distracting ourselves, don't we? Because if we're alone with our conscience, in fact, if we even cultivate a sensitive conscience, where will it end? Certainly not in our comfort, unless we follow the way of David here. Others recognize something's wrong and maybe they've tried distraction and they say, no, I've got to deal with this. And so they go off to the therapist. They go off for some counseling. But here's the thing. Unless the counselor, unless the therapist can get to the root of the problem, which is our sin and our guilt before a holy and just God, all the remedies, all the solutions that he or she recommends will just be like band-aid solutions. They won't get at the heart of the problem. Medication and mindfulness and cognitive therapy and breathing techniques, these can't give us what we need most, forgiveness. Now take a look at verse 5 with me. David says, I acknowledged, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, David doesn't wallow in his sin and his guilt. Some of us think that we can atone for our sin by just feeling downright miserable about it. You can't. Sin makes us miserable, but there's no redemption in being miserable about your sin. Look at what David does. Do what David did. David goes to God. David goes to the Lord. I acknowledge my sin to you. God is the wonderful counselor. And just as we saw earlier on in verses 1 and 2, three nouns for sin and three verbs for forgiveness, here he uses three different ways to describe his confession. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David holds nothing back and neither should any of us. 
There's no cutting corners. There's no justifications. There's no compromises or euphemisms. It's honest. It's sin. It's iniquity. It's transgression. David empties out all the cupboards of his soul and just lays it out on the floor before God. A 17th century English pastor once called confession the vomit of the soul. And that's what we're witnessing here. And this is what we need to do with our sin. This is what we need to do. Instead of trying to cover it up and make excuses, explain it away, distract ourselves endlessly, just hoping, hoping, hoping it'll go away. It won't. We need to uncover our sin. We need to put it out in plain sight for him to see it. We need to expose our sin to him in all its moral deformity and ugliness with its stench. Oh, that's a gift from God. Ultimately, ultimately, all of our sin is against God. See, sin isn't just lying or cheating or stealing or killing. Sin, sin is the whole attitude of our hearts of not trusting and loving and honoring and obeying and delighting in all that God is for us. He made us in his image to enjoy him and reflect him and praise him and know him. And we don't do any of that. We're caught up. We're so focused on. We're so in love with things that are created rather than the creator. And that is sin. All the sins that we list just fly out of that. Just grow out of that. Take another look at verse Five, I will confess. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, just be honest with him. A, a spirit in, in whom there is no deceit. That's what we want to be. Let's stop deceiving ourselves and thinking that for a moment we can possibly re- deceive the majesty of heaven. Let's come clean. Let's be honest with him because that opens up the gateway of blessing. See, Psalm 32, although I've talked a lot about this, it's not about the agony and the sorrow of our, of our sin and our, and our guilt. And I don't, I don't enjoy preaching these things. I know, let's make him feel really terrible this morning. That's never my goal. But unless we deal with it, unless we see it, we won't move on to the blessedness of free and full forgiveness in Christ. See, David, David had a reminder that God is a forgiving God all the time. He saw the priests going to the temple, offering daily sacrifices for sin. It was right there in front of them. You could probably smell the blood wafting into the temple or wafting out of the temple into the palace. But, but the whole priesthood and all the sacrificial system in ancient Israel and even the temple itself, all of these things pointed forward. 
They were just shadows of, of a reality that was coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Those priests and those sacrifices are pointing to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself on a cross for our sins. Once for all. This is so important for us to know. God doesn't merely forgive our sins. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Let's forget it. It's not like that at all. God simply said, you're forgiven. Waved his hand like this and it was all done. What would that say about his justice? Doesn't God care about our sin and our evil and our rebellion against him? Yes, he does. See, the glory of the gospel is that God has made a way to forgive our sin and at the same time uphold and fulfill his justice. That's the glory of the gospel. And he does it through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus Christ is that he is our substitute and our savior. He came to put himself in our place, to die the death that we deserve to die, to bear the punishment that our sin deserves. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is being, or Zechariah is being told by the angel what to name Jesus. You will call him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. It says, because he will save his people from their sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's us, in order that he might bring us to God. That's blessedness. See, Jesus became a substitute sacrifice for you and for me. God punished our sin on him. He became sin for us. God didn't let sin just sort of sweep it under the the carpet of the the cosmos and said, oh, forget it. No, he punished it in in the person of his own beloved son for you and for me. This ought to blow our minds. That odious, smelly, morally repugnant sin and guilt that we were suffering under the weight of, Jesus took it for you. Free. Feel the freedom of that. Forgiveness covered over, removed, not counted against you. It's removed. That's why John can say in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, that's what Psalm 32 is all about. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. He's just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's justice for God to forgive you your sin when you ask him to forgive it, when you confess it to him in the name of Jesus Christ. That brings me to my final three points, which I will cover very, very quickly. (laughs) Protection, instruction, and worship. I've never done this before. Well, actually I have, but... So we've received the blessing of being forgiven. David calls us to pray. And 
to take refuge in God's protection. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. See, David has experienced this for himself, but he's eager that he wants you to experience it too. Why? I mean, look at what's happened. Therefore, look at me. Therefore, go and pray. Go and pray now. Seek God when he may be found. God isn't a bellhop that comes like when we call down to room service. You know, send up the, the deity, would you? <laughs> it's not like that. There are many people that harden their hearts and, and, and sear their consciences and sin and sin. And then they think, oh, I can just confess it to God. He may not be there to be found on that day. That was the case with Judas Iscariot. Pray to him today. Today may be the day for you when he is found to pour out his blessing on your head. And when we do this, we enter into the relationship with him so that, so that all the flash flood of, of endless troubles that come upon us, they don't sweep us away because the Lord is our hiding place, our refuge, our fortress. He guards us, Peter says. He guards us through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. That's what we're being kept for, through faith. He's our guard. He's our protector. He's our shield and our fortress. I love this last bit. Even before we get there and and know that full blessedness of seeing him as he is and knowing him as we've been known, it says we're surrounded with the shouts of deliverance. We come among God's people and we shout and we sing about the deliverance of Jesus Christ. We're reminded every day, forgiven, redeemed, adopted, that's why I was so encouraged when the, the musical instruments went down and you could hear all your voices singing of his redemption. We were surrounded this morning with shouts of deliverance. Next, look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord addresses us here. He, he steps into the psalm and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. See, discipleship, following Jesus, is a life of learning to listen to the instruction of the Lord and walk in his ways. That's what discipleship is. That's what it means to be a disciple. Listening to the Lord's instruction as the Spirit of God stirs us to hear the word of God. As we read it and pray over it, meditate on it, memorize it. That's how the Lord counsels his people. And he leads us in the way. We need this desperately every day. Otherwise, we'll be wandering off here and wandering off there. I love that that the language of the psalm says that the Lord counsels us with his eye upon us. Not a, not a sort of a judgmental eye, like, what are you about to do now? I'm going to slam you. None of that. 
That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, when we are in Christ and when we are forgiven and blessed, God's eye toward us is like that of a father who's just wide-eyed in his delight in and love for his children. He counsels us. He looks us right in the eye and says, please listen to me. Don't be like a mule. Sometimes I say that to my kids. Don't be. No, I don't. I want to. Finally, worship, verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. Let's be reminded before we close, the ways of sin are nothing but sorrow. Here and hereafter. But... But those who confess their sins, who are honest with the Lord, who know the blessedness of being forgiven, they are surrounded. It's like he he comes and he just surrounds us in his everlasting love, his always and forever unbreaking love. That's what we know in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And therefore, it's only natural that we should sing and shout and praise and be joyful. Because you're forgiven. You're blessed. You're blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Let that hit you and elevate your soul this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you, by your spirit, would take what we've read and heard this morning and, and remind us throughout the days and weeks ahead that we are blessed, not because of anything we've been able to do to impress you, but because of what you've done for us in your son. Because you've brought us to that place where we've humbled ourselves before you and we've just, we've just told you the truth, Lord. We're sinners, We've done things and thought things and said things that that are ugly, that are rebellious, that are are evil. Father, you see it all and you know it all already. Lord, bring us to that place where we confess our sin. We open up the the, 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 the cupboards and we just pour it all out on the floor. And, And then we hear the word of forgiveness from you through Jesus Christ. Make us those kind of people that go to you every day and take out the trash so that we'll know your blessing more deeply, profoundly, and joyfully every day. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.